0: In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd
1: International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a frontline in the fight against HIV after 30 years.
0: In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad.
1: Today, we're speaking with Ernest Hopkins of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. He's a prominent black gay activist who's been engaged for over three decades in thinking about policy and programs in HIV AIDS. Ernest brings exceptional depth of knowledge and credibility. He serves with me as co-chair of the CSIS American Friends of AIDS 2020, an advisory group to the leadership of the International AIDS Conference slated for next July in San Francisco and Oakland. We took time in our conversation to talk about his formative years as an undergraduate in New York City and the evolution subsequently of his career over the past few decades. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. I'm joined today by Ernest Hopkins, senior strategist and advisor at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, where he has led its federal funding policy and legislative activities since 1997. He operates, I've discovered, both from San Francisco and from Washington, D.C., has really incomparable knowledge of the policy processes within Congress, as well as within the executive branch, but also within the broader community of activists in the world of HIV nationally. He is also co-chair with me of the CSIS American Friends of AIDS 2020. Very grateful, Ernest, that you could be with us today and very grateful that you've chosen to join up with us in the American Friends group.
2: which oh, is my pleasure. Thank great. you for the
1: invitation. So let's start with one just very brief kind of uh, biographical dimension, tell us how you got into this world. How did you get into this world? Why have you stayed in this world? It's a feature of many people working in HIV. They became involved, they got deeply invested, and they've stayed with it, and you're one of those people with considerable longevity in your career commitments. How did you first get involved? Why have you remained in this critically important role over three decades?
2: Hmm, Interesting question. I was an undergraduate at Columbia University in the college uh, when the HIV epidemic started. I was studying political science, um, international affairs, and people started getting ill. At the time, it was one of those situations where people maybe had a cough, uh, you didn't see them, they didn't come back. Um, it was impacting both um, students and faculty. And so I began to volunteer for what at the time was the, the beginnings of Gay Men's Health Crisis uh, as a buddy, where we um, assisted folks who were uh, living with HIV with kind of palliative support. This was in the plague years? This was at the very beginning in, in like 1981, things happened very fast i mean what was
1: that period like for you
2: well it was terrifying as a gay man who was socially active and sexually active in uh, new york city living on the upper west side going to the bars and the clubs to see people who were kind of the center of gravity at the time i was you know 19 20 years old so the older gay men and by older i mean 30 You know, suddenly, uh, kind of dropping out of sight and the whisper campaigns and uh, messaging around, uh, you know, what was going on. Most of us had no idea what was going on, but, you know, I come from a medical family. My father's a physician, my mother's an anesthetist. I I thought, well, surely, you know, Western medicine will prevail. We just have to uh, do what we need to do in the interim. That kept me going for many years. In 1984, I had an opportunity to travel to uh, Italy for a business opportunity and uh, went to Italy in 1984 and stayed until late 89, early 1990. And came back to Washington to discover that the city was um, in deep crisis. And then I um, Within got, the AIDS community? Within HIV, yes, especially in the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got involved with uh, a small not-for-profit that was providing emergency financial assistance to very fine, upstanding, middle-class black uh, men who were closeted, whose HIV really— p- kind of drug them out of the closet, and uh, many of them lost their jobs, were financially completely um, bankrupt, and so we were doing things like paying their rent, or keeping their lights on, or making sure they had food in the house. Um, it was it was that basic.
1: Why was it such a crisis here in D.C.? I mean, the, the common story told about the District of Columbia in terms of HIV is that it was just so late in sort of coming to terms with the scope of the epidemic, but tell us more, why was it in crisis? in that period, would you say?
2: I I think that the gay community in Washington was a very segregated one. And so uh, I don't have a lot of history and knowledge of what was going on in the white gay community because I wasn't really uh, focused in that way. But in the black gay community, we had very little public infrastructure. Mm -hmm. There were a network of social clubs and... um, discos and bars, but um, generally speaking, the kind of infrastructure that was uh, developed in the white gay community was not available to a lot of black gay men in Washington, not to mention the fact that many of them at the time were government workers, deeply closeted, Mm -hmm. uh, and the prospect of coming out as gay, much less a person living with HIV, was um, really a terrifying uh, prospect for many of them. So tell us about the transition that you
1: made from that early role to the role that's, you began in the late 90s working with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation.
2: Well, I got involved um, politically in Washington um, because I saw that as really a continuation of my studies and, and what I felt I had most to contribute um, to the process. As a political scientist. <clears throat> and uh, worked with um, Mayor Sharon Pratt-Kelly at the time, set up the Ryan White planning council which at the time was a regional council of DC and some counties in Maryland and and Virginia it's now grown very significantly to include uh, counties in West Virginia and additional counties in in northern Virginia but um, that first federal resource that came into the city, we planned uh, the social service and medical service infrastructure for HIV here in the in the region. And um, that gave me an opportunity to dig deep and learn not just about the medical services that were available, but uh, about the uh, community-based service provider network that was here and what we needed to bolster and um, the challenges of actually providing care to people who once again were um, not coming into care, not being comfortable uh, seeking care, which I think is a challenge to even today. Uh, many people not having any habits of health seeking behaviors. Um, so access is here. if you if you go to find it, you can get it and you can access it. but actually um, being motivated to do so is still a big challenge in, yep. in the community.
1: So, Ernest, we've spoken with Tori Cooper. We've spoken with Mark Haywood in previous podcasts. We've labeled those under the, the broad rubric of does HIV activism still matter? And we're going to make that the umbrella. You're the, th- you're, you're the third hitter here on this series. So let's start with, let's break that question down a little bit. Let's start with, your views on the critical role that advocacy and activism played in pulling people out of the early period of crisis. Tell us sort of what's the story, how did that operate, where was it effective and not effective?
2: I think it was uh, overall very effective, so let's start there. I think um, the story of HIV advocacy you know, has begun to be told in the in the history books, but there's still much more to say. Um, it has uh, reshaped the patient-led advocacy uh, f- model for um, diseases across the board. Many other uh, health conditions oh, the success that they've had uh, in receiving federal resources and heightening public attention to the HIV epidemic. There's no question about it.
1: So it was rooted, uh, fundamentally it was rooted in those living with HIV. Oh, no question,
2: no question. So
1: what explains the mobilization, the, the surge of mobilization that did occur? Was it all about life and death crises? Was it all about people feeling abandoned? What was it?
2: I think it was a combination of the two. So, if you um, if if you think about the early days of HIV advocacy, it was a public face of advocacy that was predominated by by white gay men, um, many of whom were very privileged, who had seen themselves as completely uh, integrated into American society, educated, um, well paid. Uh, many of them. Those that were not were comfortable in the gay enclaves of many urban communities. And then suddenly this thing comes along that um, completely uh, strips them of their um, privilege and uh, support in the community. So they're ostracized, they're now ill. And people who they well expected to support them were no longer there um offering support, so that fury so
1: thrust into a crisis yes,
2: that fury that's associated with um suddenly becoming the outcast and and other fueled a lot of the uh early uh rage and the advocacy that ensued and and certainly in in New York, I mean you know uh we had a mayor. Ed Koch, who everyone had every reason to suspect was going to uh, do the right thing, and he didn't. And uh, so that stoked further outrage, fury. We were furious
1: um, about it. What explained his his reluctance to act?
2: Well. Some would say um, that uh, he was a person who was trapped in the same kind of closet that uh, many of the folks who were living with HIV felt trapped in and that prevented them from seeking care. Um, I don't know that, but that's um, the speculation and certainly... He was well ensconced in um, the West Village community, and there was every reason to believe that um, when he saw the carnage that was going on all around him, he should have uh, responded in a very different way, and he did not.
1: Now, did the response within the black community, particularly the black gay community, did that mobilization occur later?
2: It, It occurred later.
1: So how do you date that? What would you pinpoint as sort of the moment of awakening and mobilization?
2: I don't know that I can pinpoint a moment, but certainly there were always black uh, gay men and black women involved in even the early days of um, the epidemic. And certainly there were people who were being impacted by HIV in the black community in those early days as well. I certainly recall Going to people's apartments who uh, were in the African American community and the Latinx community, they were all impacted. So um, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that it was only black, uh, only white men who were impacted. But from a public-facing uh, point of view, from the public perception and perspective, the advocacy voices uh, were predominated by white men, and so. I think that, quite frankly, a lot of um, black people were comfortable allowing that to occur because there were so many other ways in which black community was marginalized and ostracized and and, and, and I believe that they just felt that wasn't something that they needed to take on. It was much later when the community was in deep crisis that we decided that we had to step up and, and be a voice for our community. And, you know, it did, it happened later. I think, you know, the religiosity in the community had something to do with it. Fear had a lot to do with it. I think, um, the ways in which, um, people were impacted early on in the epidemic was, uh, terrifying. And I think that that had a lot to do with the, the reason that otherwise well-meaning people did not step up and, and, uh, Provide the support that was necessary.
1: Now, some have observed that, with the advances in access to, th- to treatment and to prevention therapies and and and, and support services and the like, that that the role of activism has has diminished somewhat, and that the agendas, the agenda for action, has changed as well. At the same time, that we're having a generational shift. We're having new activists come forward. Can you talk about this moment that we're in right now? Does activism, let's go back to the core question, does HIV activism still matter, but in a different way? In a different context today?
2: Domestically, I would say that HIV advocacy uh, still matters, but it's different. We don't have to make the case for the baseline of support for um, HIV services and prevention services and uh, research in the ways that we did in the early days. That that money so that
1: fight's over. That money is
2: in the budget and Mm -hmm. is protected, and people agree that it is money that's well spent and should and should stay. The policies around who gets it, um, how it's directed. what the focus of attention should be is uh, still very much on the table how does that play out do you see in terms of competition or
1: contestation over shares
2: well it's 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 interesting you know uh, frequently uh, my um, colleagues in the global in, in the global sector will point to what's happening in various countries and say, "Why can't you just do this uh, like we're doing it in in, in, a, in a country?" And I'll remind them that in order to make the comparison real, you'd have to uh, take each of the 50 states and the territories and then overlay whatever you're talking about onto onto each of those states because uh, these health departments at the state and county level have significant impact on the way that uh, HIV and other health care services are delivered. We don't have a national system of uh, delivery of care or preventive services, and so um, the comparisons don't quite fit. And uh you know the Affordable Care Act is a perfect example. It was supposed to establish Medicaid as a standard for underserved low income people across the country. But if your state didn't adopt it, um, you were uh, out of luck, and you're dealing with the same program that was in place before uh, the ACA was created and that 's true for many of the states in the South where the epidemic is still exploding you know in San Francisco. We have dramatically reduced the number of HIV infections over time where at about a 16% reduction per year. Over the last five years, it's, it's a great success story for us in some ways, but even in San Francisco, we still see intractable uh, challenges in addressing the epidemic in the homeless population, in folks who uh, use a variety of substances, in folks who have mental health challenges, and then the comorbid conditions where people have maybe all of those things happening concurrently, um, that requires a different kind of service delivery system, one that we have yet to Effectively create, and if you're in a state that uh, does not put in the kind of resources that uh, California does or, South, or San Francisco does, well, you're you're at even greater uh, loss because you you really aren't uh, able to uh, do the kind of support that needs to be done uh, for the population.
1: So the battlefield has changed. We're living in a tale of two cities in some ways. The issue set that we face today is somewhat different. Talk about the new generation of advocates and activists.
2: New generation of advocates uh, have a great advantage over the advocates of the '80s and the '90s in that, um, and, and you know, uh, those of us who were. Um, In the battle at the time, can take some credit for the fact that we've created an environment where uh, most people feel far more comfortable in claiming their sexual orientation and identity. Uh, So that's one Mm -hmm. uh, burden off their back. Um, They can bring their entire selves to the conversation. And so um, that is already um, an advantage. We've set the table with uh, a baseline of resources that are available across the country if you're living with HIV, largely at no cost. So that's off the table. Now it's a conversation about how um, to ensure that people who are not living with HIV um, don't acquire it. Um, Through use of preventive uh, care like PrEP or to ensure that people who are living with HIV are um, effectively uh, accessing treatment and are virally suppressed so that they can't transmit HIV. Those two combinations, treatment as prevention and PrEP, are the um, thing that we're trying to ensure that all communities have access to now. And not just access, but are comfortable utilizing it, that the uh, services are provided in culturally competent ways that the medical distrust that exists and has existed for so long in the black community is um, ameliorated because we're providing the services in their community by people from the community who they trust. Um, The notion of Um, just build it and they will come has been disproven over and over again. We know that's not um, the truth. And so um, we are still in many instances in a, process of building even after 30 years we're still building systems of care for populations that have long been underserved Um, that's the work now so the new advocates have to uh, take that on use the resources that are um, available in these communities uh, to uh, address the underserved and try to get additional resources and obviously it's possible I mean uh, even in this relatively um, Hostile environment. Uh, the president has announced a new initiative. We've been successful on the Hill in getting it funded on on both sides. It, whenever they pass the budget, the, the, the appropriations, finally, we will... Uh, have $291 million of new HIV resources uh, to distribute across 57 jurisdictions in the country. So uh, that's a testament to another thing that has always been true about the HIV uh, epidemic and the advocacy around it. We can get many things accomplished despite hostile uh, administrations, despite uh what appears to be um, an environment where you're not going to uh, make strides and have success over and over again—we've ch- we've proven that we um, can really succeed regardless. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, this is another example. How people are able to use those resources is going to be the test on uh, the amount of success we're gonna have in uh, shifting the epidemic, reducing infections, and improving the health status of people living with HIV.
1: We um, spoke just recently for this podcast with Dr. Redfield, CDC, about this very topic. And we also hosted Admiral Girard here at CSS last week and had a lengthy discussion around the domestic plan to end HIV by 2030. And it was, I must say I was quite moved by the the evident determination and genuine commitment, but also a certain realism about this is the, these are the tough things we face. And an openness in saying, look, we've got a roiling controversies out in our country today around LGBTQ rights, around poverty, around people of color, uh, it is a very turbulent environment that we're trying to get people focused on in this in this particular period. What do you think it's going to take to see success in this AIDS pro- the, the program of the Trump administration? What do you see? What are you telling people it's going to take in the midst of all this noise and turbulence to sort of bring this forward and build the trust and confidence of the communities, build the credibility of the program, move it forward... Get Congress to look at it in a year or two years and say, "Yes, this is working. We need to invest at a much higher level."
2: Well, the first thing is that the idea, the conception of this, is uh, is from the community. They picked it up, and good on them for and doing this dates so. Back Fifteen years, oh, yes, you know, well over a decade. Um, the, the, this conception was uh, was in place, so let's don't um, pretend that the community won't know what to do with these resources once they hit the table. Um, but the community has to be involved, and and what I have seen so far, unfortunately, is the is the mistake that government makes frequently, is they have a a very good um, uh, idea, and then they implement very poorly. And by that, I mean the community, at least to date, has been locked out of the planning process, which is a crucial error because the only way to um, understand in these counties and states how to end the epidemic is to actually uh, um, deal with and talk to the people who are um infected and uh, implicated uh, most directly what by you, HIV. Yeah.
1: What are you hearing in regard to the road show of Tony Fauci and John O'Merman, Robert Redfield, others, Admiral Girard going out to these jurisdictions? You know, They've visited at least 35 or 40 of these jurisdictions to talk to people in the communities as well as elected officials. But also there's been some small grants given out for planning purposes to those communities. What do you make of those outreach efforts as well as the sort of uh, effort to put some money in the hands of communities to put their plans together?
2: So it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, some communities have swept the floor and, um, and uh, put the, the nice uh, tablecloth on the table for the guests and pretended as if everything is fine because, the, once again, the community wasn't there in a meaningful way. They um, put on a show. There are other places where I think they've gotten an earful, and good on that. Uh, the
1: organizers the coming organizers from Washington, from Washington They've
2: gotten an earful about mm-hmm. the very things I'm talking about, kind of mm-hmm. lack of community process, uh, a rapid timeline that really forces the public health departments to respond to the requests for proposals in a time frame that really didn't allow for meaningful input from community. Um, they have taken uh, some minority AIDS initiative resources from the secretary's shop and they've provided some uh, grants to uh, counties and states. That's fine, uh, but if you're, pl- if you're sending resources out to plan for initiatives in in jurisdictions that have not had the benefit of the community voice, uh, ultimately, you're delaying success because at a a certain point, there's going to have to be a community process. And uh, the application that they wrote to receive the resources is going to have to be uh, revised. That may be just what has to happen because this is the first year, and everybody is trying to show success. and um, you know, it's it's somewhat of um, a, a game, a process that um, government forces community to engage in. Um, my hope is that as this matures, um, these communities will have um, an opportunity to meaningfully engage um, the community members um, in a conversation that's more that's not about, uh, expanding what's currently going on, but actually innovating and doing something mm-hmm. new to uh, address the deficiencies in the current systems of care. That's what you need in order to actually end the epidemic. You have to shift the paradigm. You can't just continue to um, do the same old thing. We know that the people who aren't in care are not responding to the existing systems of care, so you have to you have to create something new and different to uh to uh, get them to respond. And um, that's that requires community engagement.
1: Well, we we have heard a lot about how difficult it is to even find many of the people living with HIV, so there has to be a sort of novel and aggressive. And
2: Someone's living this, next
1: to them. Isn't there a... I mean, wouldn't you think that this will stimulate more activism at a community level, ultimately? This initiative will help stoke trigger more leadership and activism at the local community level?
2: It should, and it could. I think, um, once again, it will only um, work in that way if the community feels that what's being produced is responsive to the needs. Uh, So, once again, I think this first year, um, things haven't gone as as well as they could. Let's see what happens in 2020 when there's an opportunity to implement and revise. And then let's see how the planning process for next year goes after you've engaged um, more people from the community into the conversation. But definitely uh, when you engage uh, community members who are invested in change and invested in seeing the epidemic uh, in their community improve uh, leadership Comes out of that. Yes,
1: let's let's talk for a few minutes um, here at the end uh, about the International AIDS Conference that's coming to the Bay Area to San Francisco and Oakland next July, July sixth to ten. There's controversy surrounding this. There's always controversy of some form. In this case, that much of the controversy surrounding whether to attend or to boycott or go to an alternative. It's centered around the opposition to the Trump administration itself, which is sort of the new factor in the equation here. Tell us a little bit about how you see that opposition unfolding, where it's concentrated, you know, your own observations of what's driving that.
2: Um, I understand it. I don't agree with um, the notion that because uh, the Trump administration is in power, uh, the AIDS acti- activist community and uh, others who uh, would benefit from coming to the conference should stay away. I don't even understand that conception. The conference uh, history has been uh, a- an opportunity to speak Uh, Truth to Power, to uh, shine a spotlight, an international spotlight on... uh political activities in various governments that have hampered or were, um, had the risk of hampering our progress. And when we've had the opportunity to speak against that, the conference has played an excellent role in uh, providing the platform and shining the spotlight on those negative policies and uh, activities of governments the same could be true for us. The same will be true for us. San Francisco and Oakland, California are the cradle of um, sanctuary cities, they're the cradle of um, activism uh, writ large, not just HIV, but on so many uh, of the important issues of the day, there will be protests and there will be attention paid to the issues that many have uh, so many challenges with the Trump administration around. Um, everyone who has an interest in that should be, should be there. They should be participating. Uh, the idea of um, sending a message to the Trump administration by not coming is um, uh, ill advised, in my opinion. It doesn't um, doesn't seem to be the the strategic way to send the message to um, the administration at all. And so, uh, you know. While I understand all of the challenges associated with the policies of this administration, the way to send the signal to them that you uh, reject them and that they are counterproductive to ending the HIV epidemic is to show up in in, in mass and um, make that statement in the streets and in the. Um, in the forums that that will be provided by the International AIDS Conference, it's what we do, and I'm surprised that so many have forgotten that. Thank you. In closing, tell us,
1: Ernest, what gives you the greatest hope as a lifelong activist advocate in HIV?
2: I, I I'm excited about the fact that. Um, uh, science continues to um, surprise us, and um, that we continue to uh, see so much progress on on various uh, levels. I'm I'm excited about the U equals U movement uh, and the ways in which that has um, taken some of the stigma away from people living with HIV to live their lives freely and fully, um, to really. Uh, Recoup some of their um, sexual um, authority. Um, I'm excited about the prospect of uh, pre- of a preventive vaccine. I'm excited about um, the new long-acting um, medications that are in process uh, for folks who, for whom uh, taking a pill every day is a really significant challenge. There's a lot um, to really be excited about, um, making HIV less of a burden on people now that we have effectively reduced its uh, impact on so many is um, the next bit of work to really make sure that people's quality of life is is not impacted in the way that it has been in the past. I think, you know, depending on who you are, that's already true. Um, but if we can uh, make it true for everybody, that's the uh, That's the next horizon, and I'm excited about being a part of it. Thank
1: you, and thank you, Ernest, for being with us today. Thanks for co-chairing the American Friends group with me. Uh, I'm very grateful to you for that, and thank you for the, the years of service and commitment that you've brought to this cause. It's remarkable to hear your story, and thank you. Thank you, Steve.
0: Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV-AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you
1: get your podcasts.